Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the wonderful privilege of being able to turn aside from the affairs of this world and the cares of this world and to come aside into the harbor of safety and pure peace, even the knowledge of our God. Father, we thank you that you are the one who has supplied all that we need and underneath of the everlasting arms, all was there, all was comforting, all was a tower of strength when we need it. And Father, we thank you that you've promised that you are right there at the right hand of all those who need you. Father, I do pray, Lord, as we come together and we learn more about you. Father, I pray that this knowledge should not just be mental knowledge, but, Father, it might be revelationary truth within us, and truth that will gird us about with strength. Father, that we indeed should be those people who can see through the gimmicky nature of present-day Christianity. Father, those people, Father, who can see through the flimsy nature of much which is called Christianity. And that, Father, we should be those who are mature in our God. That, Father, we should have discernment, that we should know the wiles of the devil and be able to resist them. Father, we know that he'd love to lead your children astray. But, Father, those who know their God shall be strong and shall do exploits. And, Father, that's our prayer for your church, that this sleeping giant may arise. Yet, Father, we know it's not going to come through gimmicky methods or sales methods or punchy techniques. It's going to come when we return to our God again and see him as he is. And, Father, I would ask tonight for clarity in my own spirit, Lord, that, Father, your Holy Spirit may be able to flow through me as, as through a pure vessel, Father, that indeed the holiness of our God should be seen in all its wonder and yet all of its severity also. Father, please give us the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. Father, therefore I would ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will take from this moment on the rest of the evening that we should really know fullness of joy as we learn about you. In Jesus' mighty name I do ask it, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Praise God. Amen. In the car coming tonight, I was asked, which of all the tapes that you've done do you remember as the most significant that you've ever done? And do you know, I had to say immediately that it was the tape I did some years ago called The Great White Throne. But coming a close second to that was actually the talk I gave last time on the sovereignty of God. And I think those of you who were here to hear that particular study will agree that it really was one of the most difficult, but one of the most important subjects that I personally have ever covered. You remember what we, we saw? That in fact, until we will recognize the fact that he is sovereign, that is, that he is master, that he has a right to do as he please in his creation, and without consulting us too. Until we come to a place where we can acknowledge that fully, then in fact we can't ever really say that God is our King or that Jesus is our Lord. And I made the point, and I hold to it absolutely, that we would have God as everything else, but we all find it hard to allow him to be sovereign in our lives. Remember what I said? He can be our redeemer, he can be our healer, he can be the one that fights for us. We'll let him be all of those things, but the moment he ascends to the throne, we don't like it. We want to be his partner. We don't want to be his subject. And someone during the week said, Roger, I really agree with everything that you've said. And he actually said, I find another evil within myself. And that is this, he said. And I agree with this absolutely. He said, when, when I allow God to be God... When I allow him to be king, I think I've done God a favor. And you know, it's true, isn't it? And you hear someone say, well, I've really allowed God. Now I've decided God must have the victory in all this. And so I'm allowing him to do as he please. And then we turn around to God and we say, well, there you are, God. You've got to bless me now. I've done you this favor. And I must say that the more I think of it, the more challenged I become in myself. And I hope no one of you believes or thinks that because I minister on the sovereignty of God, that I'm absolutely at that place where God is totally sovereign in my own life. I'll tell you, I find it a constant battle, this thing. I'm speaking from personal experience when I shared what I shared. 
Can I just show you one scripture that challenges me every time I read it and it challenges me again tonight? I hope it challenges all of you. In Luke and chapter 17, soon as you see it, you'll say, oh yes, that's challenged me. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 7, talking about a master who has a servant. Look what he says. But which of you, he says, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet? Which of you who's a master, you've got a servant, after the servant's finished in the field, which of you will say, oh, come in, let me wait on you in the table? No, he says, verse 8, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not, says Jesus. And you know, I find that terribly challenging, because sometimes after I've been away for nine days or something like this, and I've been ministering my heart out, sometimes I want to come back home, and I want God to sort of wait on me a bit now. Or I want to have a little time off, thinking, well, Lord, I've worked so hard, you know, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait just for a little while I recover. And yet every time I do it, I, I think of this scripture, and I'm challenged by it, because having done all that, I then have to go and worship God, and have to wait on Him, and have to give Him my all. And it's almost as if this sovereignty is absolute sovereignty. And we've got to get to the place where we delight that God should come along to us when we're exhausted because we've been working so hard, clearing rubble from one of God's houses, or something like that, or helping people in the body of Christ, where we then get in expecting to be seated in comfort, and God says, and what about me now? You've served my family, what about me now? And you see, this passage is another passage on sovereignty, and it's a tremendous challenge. I want to put that in at the beginning here, because really, as I was thinking about this during the week, I suddenly realized this is the passage that has challenged me, perhaps more than any other. And may God bring us to the place where we will allow him to be God and allow him to be king, and we will delight in our exhausted state to then come before him and to serve and wait on him. All right, but tonight we're moving on to another attribute. And you remember for the rest of the series, we'll be going through the attributes of God. And tonight we come to this most stunning of attributes, that is, the holiness of God. And I want you to know immediately that this attribute is marked out in the Bible as a very special attribute. I would say, in fact, this is the attribute of attributes. This is the very dual in God's character as far as the Bible is concerned. Because I believe this, that in the Bible, there is no attribute which appears so often as God's holiness. In fact, one of the titles of God, and one that's used more than most other titles in the Bible, is this. He is called the Holy One. Whenever God manifests himself, holiness is manifested on every side. It's constantly underlined that God is holy. You think of the times when God appeared. Do you see the holiness of God in that? You almost always do. Do you remember when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush? Do you remember that? And Moses looked and he couldn't understand how this bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed at all. And the voice said this, Moses, take your shoes off, because the ground on which you stand is holy ground, for where God is, holiness is revealed. Do you remember just a few decades later, as Joshua was standing outside Jericho, do you remember what happened? He saw a person. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen earlier on in this series. And Jesus immediately turns to him, and he just says this, take your shoes off. The ground on which you stand is holy ground. His holiness and his presence constantly go hand in hand. Do you remember the time when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he looks up and he says, I saw the Lord, and the Lord was high and lifted up. His train filled the temple, and what was the impression he was left with? It was the impression of God's holiness. Do you remember, he falls flat on his face, he says, woe unto me. 
He said, I dwell, I'm an unclean person, I'm undone, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. He'd seen the holiness of God. And the, the words of the angels rang in his ears. Do you remember what the angels said when God appeared? It wasn't sovereign, sovereign, sovereign is the Lord God of hosts. It wasn't. It wasn't mighty, mighty, mighty is the Lord God of hosts. No, sir. It wasn't love, love, love is the Lord God of hosts, like so many Christians would like it to be. It wasn't any of those. Or eternal, eternal, eternal. Or faithful, faithful, faithful. True, true, true. No. What was it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And I believe that the sound that comes most from the angels' mouths is that God is holy, a recognition of his holiness. It's revealed in the Bible. It, the holiness of God is stated, it's restated, and it's stated again. Until if you read it through, you'll find it's holiness that comes out more than any other attribute as far as the Bible is concerned. It's the crowning jewel among the attributes. Let's have a look at just a few scriptures that show the holiness of our God. Let's take Old Testament ones, first of all. I'm just going to take uh, three. First of all, Exodus 15, and verse 11, and this is the great song of Moses, right? This is all written in verse here. And one day we're going to hear the tune that God gave him to sing it to. And uh, they sang. Now they're rejoicing in what God's done. They've seen his mighty power. And yet look at this well-known verse in the middle of the song, in verse 11. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises? doing wonders. You see the two words there, holiness and glory, and the glory of God is his holiness. You see that? Glorious in holiness, he says. The emphasis there that's given to it. Another verse found in 1 Samuel 2.2. By the way, this is the prayer of an ordinary woman in Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, and verse 2, oh, I wish we had ladies or gentlemen who had the knowledge of God that Hannah had when she prayed this. Have you ever heard a Christian pray a prayer as deep as this? I never have yet. But perhaps the day is going to come. Look what she just says. Verse 1 and verse 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. And then this, there is none holy as the Lord. For there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Isn't it a beautiful prayer? There is none holy like our God. There is none holy as the Lord, is what she says. So his holiness is his glory. Here, it's the unique factor that marks out all the other factors. Of course, our God is, is unique. But here it is. There is none holy like him, she says. And then one other scripture, and perhaps I like this better than, than the other two that I've read. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where Jehoshaphat, you remember, is preparing the singers to go into battle. He doesn't send the, <clears throat> the lancers in first. He sends the singers in first. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 20, And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this is what he says, Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Amen. That still applies today. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. Amen. Still applies today. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. 
And do you see there, to praise the beauty of holiness. I don't like some of the modern translations at that particular point. I love this phrase, to praise the beauty of holiness. One writer actually said this, that the arm of the Lord is his power, that the eye of the Lord is his omniscience, that the bowels of the Lord are his mercy, the duration of the Lord is his eternality, right? That he lives forever, but the beauty of the Lord is his holiness. I just love that. And Jehoshaphat here really knew what he was talking about. Do you see the way that holiness is spoken of? It's not just a fact that's presented. There's always something that decorates it in some way. It's his beauty, it's his glory. He's unique in this fact, his holiness. There it is. His holiness is so high that you know God actually swears by his holiness. Now, in the ancient days, what you often used to do, you used to take a vow and you used to say, I swear by, and you used to name something that was the most precious thing you've got. And what you were saying to the person you were taking the vow with is this, if I break my vow, you can have that thing. That's what you're literally saying. I swear by my bank account that so-and-so-and-so. And what you're really saying to them is, if I break my vow, look, the whole of my wealth up and take me, whatever it is, it's yours. Now, what is the thing God swears by? It is holiness. That is quite a staggering statement, you see. Let's let's just check that out in in Psalm 89. I love Psalm 89 because it's got the famous phrase in it uh, that the moon is God's faithful witness in the heavens. I love that little phrase. Every time I see the moon, I remember that. As long as the moon is up there, Our God is still on the throne. Hallelujah. And in Psalm 89, talking about his covenant to David, this is what he says, verse 34. My covenant, he says, will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Wonderful. His covenant to David, specifically. Do you know that every believer is in covenant relationship to their God? Do you know that? God has a covenant with me. And the same rule applies. God won't break his covenant with me, nor with my family, nor will he break his covenant with you. And then he says this, verse 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. Now that's an absolute promise. It's an absolute covenant, and God has put his, uh, the backing of his holiness on it. What he's saying is this, if, I, if this is a lie, the whole of my character falls to shreds, and the main thing that falls to shreds is my holiness. God has promised to Israel, you know, by his holiness. Israel's future is as certain as can be. God has a covenant with Israel like he has no other nation on the face of this earth. There's one nation that will survive everything. I'll tell you that, and it's Israel. Do you know why? Because God's sworn by his holiness. There's another nation that will survive as well, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. Because God has sworn by his holiness in that. See how high this is. God's holiness is, is absolute holiness. And that means that every thought of God is holy, every word he speaks is holy, and more than that, every deed that he does is holy. Absolutely true. Everything that God does is holy. In Psalm 145, you have a complete statement of that. Psalm 145 and verse 17, and I want to read verse 18 as well. It says here, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Whatever he has done, he is holy in them. Do you remember last time I said that we are not to be those who question God in the type of way that fools question God? God, why have you done this? God, are you right to have done this? And to question him in that sort of way. Because we know nothing of the fear of God if we do. This says that whatever God has done, he's done in his holiness. And those things have to be right. If God's done them, they must be right. That's what this actually says. In verse 18, the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. His holiness is the thing 
here that's marked out. All things that he does must be good because he is the holy God. We must beware that we don't do what many Christians do, and that is imply that God has done something bad, to imply that God has done something wrong. Sometimes I hear this, you know, well, God tempted me, you know? That's what some Christians think, that all the, the things that have come against them, well, it's God's fault. You know, he's the one who has done that. Now, we're warned against that view, because if you think that God can do evil, you're actually saying he's not holy in his character. God is holy, and everything he does is holy. has to be so. You know where that warning is? I think I wasn't going to turn to this, but I think we ought to. Let's just go to James chapter 1, where we're warned of that error. In James chapter 1... Verse 13. Now, this is what we must keep in mind. And here, we revere his holiness if we do. In James 1, verse 13, it says this, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God does try us sometimes, of course. He tries our hearts, as Jeremiah says. But he never comes along and puts a temptation in front of you, a sinful temptation. That's not from God. That's from the devil, always, or from yourself. So don't ever say that God's done that, because he hasn't. Then verse 7, sorry, verse 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, is what he says. And you might say, well, where did sin come from then? Is God the author of sin? No, God isn't the author of sin. When God created the devil, when he created Adam, he created them with this quality that we call free will. Now, all of that is good. God permitted man to have free will, and that was a good thing. It was when man decided to rebel against God and to choose against him that sin came into the world. It's when the devil decided that he wouldn't go God's way. That is where sin came from. Sin was the product of an evil desire in man. Man decided in his free will he was going to rebel against God. God said, do this. Man said, well, you've given me free will. I choose to do that. That's where evil was born. And this goes on to say that when we are tempted, the devil comes and tempts us. But you know, the only reason that sin comes from that is because we hook on to the temptation. So the devil comes and whispers an evil thought in our heads. And what do we do? The way down is this. If you think about that word, then begin to enjoy it. You're on the way down to sin. And soon after that, sin will be the result. But sin has come from within you. Certainly not from God in all of these things. God is so holy, he can only do that which is righteous. All right, so the Bible clearly marks out the holiness of God. But I haven't defined holiness. Do you remember last week when we came to sovereignty, I began by defining it. Why, it was so easy, wasn't it? Do you remember I said that the word sovereign means the highest, the chief, the supreme? So easy. If only defining holiness was as easy as that. Have you ever tried to define holiness? You'll find when we come on to other attributes, we have the same problem of definition. I mean, is holiness righteousness? Well, yes, it is, but it's a bit more than righteousness, isn't it? Is it purity? Well, yes, but it's a bit more than purity. The funny thing is, we all know what holiness is in our hearts, but it's very hard to define it. And, and it's very strange, this, because in fact, the easiest way to define something like holiness is to define it in a negative way. Not to say what it is, but to say what it isn't. Right? There are many things that it's easier to do that with. When we come on to immutability, let me just tell you this. When we come on to study immutability, I would say God is immutable. Why? Because God never changes. Now, that's a negative definition. What's immutability? Well, it's the fact that God never changes. And why do we like definitions like that? Well, you see, I change all the day. I can really appreciate what change is. And all I know is that God doesn't do what I do. And do you see what I mean? It's not a positive definition, it's a negative one. 
If I handed out bits of paper here tonight and said, now think for a minute and then write down your definition of holiness, I bet you that the vast majority here would soon come to the definition like this, that holiness is the absence of sin. That God is holy because he never sins and he never errs and he never makes a mistake. Never. He never makes a misjudgment. Do you see? It's a negative thing that we say. God is holy because he doesn't sin. But is that enough? No, it's not. The minute I say it, you know that's not good enough. It's rather like saying, what is health? You know, what's health? Is health the absence of sickness? Well, it is, but it's bigger than that, isn't it? I mean, you can have two people who are, and you say to them, are you sick? No. Are you sick? No. And you look at one, you say, well, you're healthy, and you look at the other and say, you're not very healthy. It's not just the absence of something, it is a positive quality. Now, the trouble is, you see, that I know what sin is like, right? I know what it's like. I know my own sinful nature. So when I say, well, God is not like me, God's got the absence of what I've got, that helps me, but even so, I know that it's not good enough. And so we've got this constant problem when we come to holiness, and so to help us out a bit, what I want to do is to look at holiness in the way that I almost did last time. Do you remember last time I drew out a list of the attributes of God? And the first one, of course, at the top of the list was sovereignty. The second one then I called absolute righteousness. Absolute righteousness. The third one I called absolute justice. And then I went on to the others. Do you remember omniscience and omnipotence, omnipresence, and so on, down the list? And do you remember what I did? I linked together number two and number three, that is absolute righteousness and absolute justice, and I said that together they produce holiness. And I think it's when we study those two things, absolute righteousness and absolute justice, that perhaps we begin to get an idea of the fullness of what holiness is. I'm so sorry it's hard to define, even though we all know what it basically is. But holiness has a positive side and a negative side to it. The positive side is number two, that is absolute righteousness. The negative side here is absolute justice. And the interesting thing is, in Hebrew, the word righteousness and the word justice are from the same common root in the Hebrew. They're linked together. All right, so let's have a look at, first of all, the positive side, and have a look at absolute righteousness. Now, what we're saying when we say that God is absolutely righteous is this, that he is the standard of righteousness, that everything has to be measured by him. Don't make the mistake that many make. They get a moral code, even the Ten Commandments, and they compare God to that moral code. And they say, well, here it says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And then it says, and we look at God, and he doesn't. So he must be holy. No, no, don't ever do that, because what you're doing is making God less than the moral code. No, it's the other way around. God is the absolute standard, and all moral codes have got to be checked against God. You know, people in the world today, they often do this. I heard one very stupid man on the radio, and what he said is this. He said, uh, he was asked, how did he view death? He said, I can't wait. He said, when I get to heaven, I've got a few questions to ask God. <laughs> ah, big, big deal, you know, this big fellow. And they said, really, what questions? Well, why he could allow all this suffering for a start? And that's it. And what this fellow was doing, you see, I mean, he had no understanding at all, but he had a certain morality, and he was saying, well, I don't think God matches up to that, and I want an explanation. Now, that is stupidity. There is a fool, if ever you've seen a fool, and one day, let me tell you, that day's coming. He will have the opportunity to ask God a question. He won't say a word. He'll be so awed by the presence of the Lord. He really will. Don't ever try and compare God to a moral code and find that God doesn't match up to it. If God doesn't match up to your moral code, your moral code is wrong. I'm sorry about that. When God says that abortion is wrong, 
No matter what the moral code of society says, abortion is wrong because God says it. He is the standard, no one else. If God says homosexuality is wrong, it's wrong. No matter whether you're a homosexual or your best friends are homosexual or you know some nice homosexuals. It doesn't matter. All society thinks they're all wonderful and thinks everyone should be a homosexual. <laughs> if God says homosexuality is wrong, it is wrong, whether it's a problem you've got or, or whatever. It's wrong, totally, full stop. God is the standard in all of this. Now, what God did, he wrote the Ten Commandments so that we might understand something of his holiness. He wrote the whole of the law so we might understand something of his holiness. But you know, his holiness is bigger than the Ten Commandments and the whole of the law. Did you know, I say this in passing, did you know that the word sin is actually an old archery term in Hebrew? Did you know that? That if you were an archer in ancient uh, Israel, it, it, you used the word sin. It me meant to miss the bullseye, right? And there you are aiming for the target and you miss. And sin is to miss the mark. But did you also know that the word law, that is Torah, is also an archery term? Did you know that? And it means something to help you hit the mark. You see, in, in rifle shooting, it would be the sights and you look through the sights to try and hit the clock or whatever you're aiming for, right? You get the clock in your sights and kabow, and off you go. The law of God is there to help us see how far off the target we are. That's what it's all about. And we look at the law of God and we say, Lord, I am such a sinner. But even the law, you know, is a poor reflection of God's holiness. It expresses his holiness, but his holiness is even bigger than that. God wrote the law. Don't you ever try and compare God to the law. He's above the law. That's why I'm convinced in John 8, we have this rather strange activity that Jesus indulges in. Have you ever noticed this little verse in John and chapter 8? Let's turn to it. I could say much about this, but I haven't got time tonight. In John 8, we have the incident of the woman who's caught in adultery. Do you remember that? Right? And she is brought before Jesus by the religious people of the day. She's been caught in the act, in the very act. So they turn to Jesus and they say this, verse 5. They remind him of the law. John 8, verse 5. Now Moses in the law, they say, commanded us that such as this woman should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And have you read the next verse, verse 6? This, they said, tempting him that he might have to accuse him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. And he just says, let him that is without sin among you cast the first stone. And sometimes I used to wonder, why did Jesus, why is it recorded that he wrote? I'll tell you why it's recorded. He is actually reminding anyone who will have ears to hear and eyes to see that he wrote the law in the first place. That's what he's doing. Here they are quoting the law at him. Here they are telling him, well, look, it says this in the law. And Jesus is writing in the ground to try and remind them he wrote the law in the first place. There it is. I'd love to know what he wrote. I'd love to know. We, I'm going to know one day. I've got a few questions to ask God when I reach heaven, but they're all nice questions. I'm going to ask, what did he write, you know? Did he write, thou shalt not bear false witness? Or what? I don't know. But all we know is Jesus here is signifying he is the one that wrote the law in the first place. He... Yes, in the Bible he's shown as equal to the law, but actually he's above the law. He wrote it. Have you seen the Beatitudes? Let's go quickly to Matthew chapter 5. You know what they've done? They've taken the law of God and they've reduced it down to manageable proportions. Don't we do that as Christians? You know, God says you've got to love everybody. And what we say is, well, I'll go along and I'll smile at everyone and as long as they don't know that I don't love them... That's all fine, you know, and yes, hello, brother. And it doesn't matter what goes on in your heart. It doesn't matter what's written in the letter, as long as the envelope's clean. And that's what most people think, you see. But sometimes you get the Christian who says, well, I'm not going to be a hypocrite anymore. 
Right? If it's in my heart, I'm going to let them know. So they go around, no, I don't love you. And they think that's honesty. You see? Here, what Jesus is saying is this, that the law of God, the righteousness that we should have, isn't just an external thing, it applies on the inside as well. And God looks at the heart, and it's no good saying, well, God, I looked as if I was loving. God will look at your heart, and he says, but you haven't got any love in there. You see? And so what does Jesus say to these scribes and Pharisees who were so self-righteous? Oh, we've kept the law absolutely. And this is what he says. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. And they all puffed up their chests. We've never killed anyone, they said. And this is what he says, verse 22. But I say unto you, and in the Greek it's emphatic there, I say, and you know what he's saying? He's saying, that's what the law said, and I'm an equal authority to the law, and this is what I say. And this is what the law really meant that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Don't just be taken in with the externals. Look at the heart. Inside it's got to be right as well. That's the law of God. And over just another one in verse 27. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, says Jesus, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath already committed with her adultery with her already in his heart. You see, the inside has got to be right. And beloved, I, may I tell you this, that if you are hypocritical over this, in other words, this is going on inside of you and you're all self-righteous because your outside is clean, you're wrong. But don't then say, well, I'm going to be honest about this and this is what I feel and this is what's going to come out. No, what you should do is to say, God, cleanse my heart. It's such a shame. I'm ashamed of this thing. Don't think it's being, you know, sincere to let the inner man show in that type of way. Ask God to deal with the inner man. That's what you ought to do. But you see, the point I'm making, Jesus here is saying, I'm equal to the law. And this is what the law was really all about, except you have come along and you've made it easy. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says this, that when you look at God's absolute righteousness, you suddenly realize that you're a sinner. For all have sinned, Romans 3, 23. You all know this verse. And what? Come short of the glory of God. I defined holiness, didn't I, as the absence of sin. Here it says that sin is the absence of holiness. Well, 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 it doesn't help us very much. But do you see the point? God is absolutely righteous. That's it. It's a positive quality. Well, let's have a look at the negative side as well. The negative side is God's absolute justice. What do we mean by that? God's absolute justice says this, that if there is sin, he must deal with it. He can't overlook it. That's what justice is all about. And justice today means if there is something that is, is wrong, something has occurred and it's wrong, it must be corrected. And that's what justice is all about. Judgment, justice. God's justice demands that sin is dealt with. It must be so. That is why there will be a great judgment. And that great judgment is coming upon the whole world. Do you know why there's a judgment? Because God's holiness is offended by what people have done. That's why there's a judgment ahead. It's the holiness of God that dictates that there will be a judgment. Can we turn to Ezekiel chapter 36? And there's a lovely verse which talks about this. In Ezekiel 36, and I added this just two minutes before I left the house to my Bible study. This is a I just decided I ought to put it in. In Ezekiel 36, verse 21, where he's threatening to have judgment upon Israel and threatening to judge the nations around Israel. Why? Because of his holiness. That's why. Verse 21 of Ezekiel 36, But I had pity for mine holy name, he says. It's my holy name that's the main thing here which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do, not, I, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, 
which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. And you see here judgment and holiness going hand in hand. There has to be a judgment day. And the marvelous thing for the Christian is this. The day is coming when there will be no injustice in the universe. Isn't that a wonderful day? Every injustice is going to be sorted out. One of the things, you know, that as an atheist I used to feel was frustration. Because no matter how hard we worked, there were still injustices going on. The Amnesty International lot. Do you know, they feel it in their hearts, the injustice of this earth. And yet they die frustrated people because the injustice gets worse and worse and worse. The Christian does not have to die frustrated. God's holy name means that every injustice is going to be dealt with. And you see, his holiness has the positive aspect, but it's also got teeth in this negative aspect. There really will be a judgment. And when you hear people all the time saying, but God is love. How can a loving God ever cast people out of his presence? What you should say is this, God is love, but he's also absolute justice. God is absolute righteousness. In other words, God is holy. That's why he will do it, for his holy name's sake. And some people say it's not fair that some people will be cast into the lake of fire. It is fair. They've sinned against God. That's perfectly fair. What's not fair is that some are going to actually live forever and ever face to face with him. That's not fair. But God has provided the way. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? It's we, beloved brothers and sisters, who can say, no, it's not fair, but by the grace of God, there stand I. And to know this, that God has provided it for every man on the face of the earth, except they won't do it. As my mother-in-law said to me the other day, she said the words of Jesus really spoke to her when he said, what more could I have done? What more can God do? He's redressed that unfairness, yet people refuse to take it. So a judgment is coming. Why? Because of God's holiness. Oh, there's one other passage I want to look at in Psalm uh, 73. And this might help some of you. I know it helps me a great deal. I'm going to read it in the NIV, right? Because it comes out so clearly. And here David, who's tried to live a righteous life before God, and he looks around him and all the unbelievers are prospering. Have you ever felt that? Everything they do seems to come right. And he is trying to serve the Lord and everything goes wrong. Oh, why is that the case? You know, and you listen to all these faith ministries and it shouldn't be so, and yet somehow it is so. What's all this about, you know? And your non-Christian heathen cousin, you know, who hates God, he rings up, oh yeah, I just bought a house, just sermed through. No problem at all. You know, it doesn't happen to all you Christians, but it happens to some, doesn't it? Or hasn't it happened to anyone here? Look what he says in Psalm 73, verse 3. For I envied the arrogant, he says, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Oh, I know what he feels like. They have no struggles, do they? They don't struggle. Every evening they get in, it's TV from beginning to end. They're relaxed. Wow, super. And what have we been doing? We've been dealing with problems in the body of Christ. Lord, it's your church. Now I've got to deal with the problems. Then it says they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to Christian men. I've added that. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. You let them get away with it. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. Oh, you Christians. Oh, boy. That's what being a Christian is. I'm glad I'm not one. Have you heard it all? Yes. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? They laugh. This is what the wicked are like. All was carefree. They increase in wealth. Dear, oh dear, look at that. Surely in vain, says David, have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. 
like those businessmen who try and do it God's way. They find it's not easy. So many of them are tempted to go, oh, why have I tried it God's way? It didn't seem to work. There it is. And that's what David's complaining of. All day long, he says, I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. That's how I feel sometimes. You know? Oh, Lord, more problems and things. And then, right, he goes, <clears throat> he goes on. See, all day long. And it's lovely because he then says, verse 17, or verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. And it's only when you turn back to God that you finally see it all again. And in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. They will perish. They live for a few years in this type of arrogance, in their prosperity. But in the end, it's perishing. That's what's ahead for them. I've seen it among Christians. Oh, I praise God that the judgment seat of Christ is what will affect Christians. Have you seen it? There are some people who really want to move on with God. They really do. Every meeting they seek God for the word of the Lord in that meeting, you know? And somehow it's hard, you know? They want to wait on God and it's so tough. And then you see other Christians, they couldn't care less. They come along, some of the meetings, you know, sit there. They're not going to move out in God. Why should they put their feet up? Well, it's so easy, you know? Simple, yes. And, the, and there are we and we look at them and we think, they have it so easy. You know, their phone never goes. Because they're never available. If someone rang up and said, I need prayer, oh, sorry, have you contacted Roger? <laughs> they're never going to move out in faith or anything like that. No, they want the easy path. And sometimes those of us who are really moving on with God, we look at them and we say, Lord, have I chosen the wrong path? And yet it's lovely. It's lovely. Because what we can say is this, and this is so beautiful, what we can say is, God, that day is coming. And in that day, we won't be the fools. They'll be the fools, not us. We'll be the wise. For judgment is coming and it begins with the household of God. Isn't that good news? Hallelujah. Well, I like it anyway. Praise God. So do you see, here it is. Our God is holy and that's why this judgment is coming. His holiness is such that he can never compromise it. Where do we see the inability of God to compromise his, holy, his holiness more clearly than anywhere else? It's on the cross of Calvary, isn't it? What happened at the cross of Calvary? Do you remember? Jesus, all his life, had obeyed the law of God. He kept it totally. By the end of his life, the Bible says he'd not sinned. He had positive righteousness. And when he was hanging upon that cross, he was the lamb without spot and without blemish. Do you remember that? And do you remember what happened then? The sins of the whole world were taken by the Father, and they were laid on him. And the moment it happened, a scream came out of the lips of Jesus, and he said these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, why have you forsaken me? And even there, their beloved this beloved person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, hanging on the, the cross, the one who'd never known separation from the Father or the Holy Spirit, at that point with the sins of the world, my sins and your sins upon him, at that point he knew for the first time ever what it was to be separated from God. God saw the sin of the world and judged him guilty and separated himself. At that point we see how God cannot compromise his holiness. Why did he separate? Let's see Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, which we've seen before. Habakkuk 1, <clears throat> and verse 13. Here it is. This is why he separated. This is what we've got to keep in mind as far as we're concerned. Verse 12, first of all, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one, we shall not die. And then in verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes 
than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. And even there on the cross of Christ, you see that the holiness of God has to be obeyed. And God the Father and God the Holy Spirit turn their backs. All right, with that holiness in mind, can I now just ask, what does this mean for the Christian? What do we get from this holiness that applies to us? And there are four things that I want to, to mention. The first is this, that because we Christians are going to live forever and ever and ever in the presence of God, God's holiness demands that he must have provided for us. God has provided for us in his love. How's he done it? He's done it through the work of Jesus Christ. How has he? How has he performed this? Let's go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians and chapter 5 and verse 21. Here's how he's done it. And those of you who've heard the first series of tapes on salvation, this is old hat as far as you're concerned. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's what he did. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now that's the provision that he's made. What it's saying is this. There was Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was a millionaire in righteousness. He had a lot of righteousness, absolute righteousness. But he was bankrupt as far as sin was concerned. He had no sin at all. Now here am I, I'm a millionaire in sin, but I'm bankrupt in righteousness. And all that happened was this, God did a swap. Isn't that wonderful? First of all, he dealt with my sin. He took that sin and put it on Christ, counted it as guilty, and Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin. So the sin was dealt with. But having your sin dealt with isn't enough, because God is positive righteousness. It's no good just being neuter and coming into the presence of positive righteousness. You've got to have a righteousness equal to that of God. So what's the next thing he did? He took the positive righteousness of Christ and he gave it to me. Isn't that wonderful? I can stand in his presence clothed with robes of purest white. I can talk to him daily at his throne. For his, his blood has made me righteous and his love has drawn me near. And I'm precious to him. Precious. I'm his own. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, what it means is this, that now I can approach the Father, not in my own righteousness, but clothed with the garment of salvation, the righteousness of Jesus. And when I pray, it's always in the name of Jesus. And what I'm saying is, Father, I can't approach you, but through Christ now I have boldness to come before you. Right? So we are clothed with his righteousness. The good news also, as far as we're concerned in that, is this. When we die, instantaneously, we will be as righteous as Jesus Christ. Instantly. Isn't it amazing? Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. He hadn't done a thing. Hadn't done any righteousness at all. But the work of Christ would even be effective for him. Now that's good news, isn't it? So today, in Christ, I'm righteous. And tomorrow or the day when I die, or the day we're raptured, we'll be able to go straight to heaven and we will see the Lord and be with him because of the provision of Jesus Christ. Now that's the first thing that holiness demands. If God is as holy as that, and I'm as sinful as this, if he promises me that we're going to live forever, he must have provided, and so he has, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why there is salvation in none other, because no one else has, has enough righteousness to take me through into heaven. Now it's as clear as a bell, I hope, right? The second thing is this, that number one, God has provided, but two, secondly, God demands holiness today. God can't compromise his holiness, and therefore in our personal lives, he is looking for holiness. And you know, one of the th reasons we're on this earth is that God may, in fact, produce holiness within us by the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants. Uh, keep your finger in 2 Corinthians, because I'll be coming back. But let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 
and chapter 4. And here we see the will of God for us. Look what it says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. Now, this is the will of God for you. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. And the word sanctification is holy. That God wants you holy. That you should abstain from fornication. And I want to say this. You mustn't ever think that you can get out of this. God's plan for your life is holiness. He wants you holy on a daily, personal level. Now, some people don't like it. You often meet those Christians, and they compromise quite happily, you know, half in the world, half in holiness. And what they tend to say is, oh, you're, more, you're holier than thou, you lot. You see? Don't you believe it? You've got to see this, that in fact, what the Bible says is clear, that friendship with the world is enmity as far as God is concerned. That, that is the clearest statement as far as holiness is concerned. Friendship with the world is enmity as far as God is concerned. And yet you will always meet the happy brigade. There they are, they're born again, they're as worldly, they love the world, you know, they want to be friends with Christians, they can't understand why these Christians are so fuddy-duddy, stick in the mud, they don't seem to call anymore. Why don't they call? You know, can't understand it. I'll tell you why they don't call, because they're offended by the lack of righteousness and the lack of holiness. That's why they don't call anymore. Oh, well, there you are, you see, judging me and other things. Look, the plan of God for our lives is righteousness, and we've got to face up to it immediately. Oh, that lovely verse. Have you, have you seen that verse? Is it, I think it's 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter... 1 Peter 1, verse 15. I was thinking about this verse just earlier this week. I had quite a revelation about it, I must say. Funny how we don't like this verse very much. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Conversation isn't just the way you talk. It's in all your manner of life. Be you holy in all your life. And then verse 16, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. Isn't that funny? God says, one of my attributes is holiness, and I want you to be holy. And yet we don't want it. No. If he'd offered almost any other attribute, we'd have taken it instantly. If God said to us, be you sovereign, like I'm sovereign. Oh, we love it. Oh, thank you, Lord. I want to be boss around here. We'd take it instantly. We'd enjoy it thoroughly to be boss. God's absolute master, and he said, be ye sovereign, because I am sovereign. Wonderful. So I'm going to be Lord over the whole thing. How many of us are trying to be omniscient? We spend all our lives being omniscient. Some people think, I'm omniscient. They're dead wrong. You know? Oh, Roger, I've got a few Bible questions. <laughs> if God said, be you omniscient, for I am omniscient, what a wonderful thing that will be. It will be official now. We can be a know-all. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We'd love it. Or be omnipotent, because I am omnipotent. Instantaneously, we'd take him up on it, straight away. But the moment he says, be ye holy, for I am holy, or be you loving, because I am loving, it doesn't grab us somehow. You know, well, you know, it's not terribly attractive. Because in the world, you see, the other things are attractive. In God, this is attractive. But you see how worldly we are. We want the world stuff. But we won't take that which is God's own thing. And this is what I said in the very first talk, that the thing I'm concerned with is how much of our Christianity is man-centered rather than God-centered. God longs for us to be holy. If only we'd see it. And yet so many people try and be worldly and they think that's it. It's in fashion to be worldly now. To get it to the world. Oh no, you won't get to the world by being worldly. They'll get at you. That's all that will happen. You see? Oh, no, no, no. But God says here, listen, I'll share my attributes with you. Here's one. You can be holy, like I'm holy. Well, try again, God. You know, it's, oh, well, don't like it. Or if we do like it, what we tend to say is, well, as Augustine said, Lord, make me a saint, but not yet. That's what we say, isn't it? Isn't it right? Am I talking about myself only? I'm sure not. Yet we've got to see that God's holiness is very important. He wants us to be holy. 
and that it's time we started taking this absolutely seriously. Back to the passage I asked you to keep your finger in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it's one of many, many scriptures that say this. Look what it says in verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And let's stamp that upon ourselves, that no matter how much the carnal Christians will gawp at us and think we're crazy and holier than thou, yet for me and my house we're going to be holy. Ah, well that's it. Yes, all right, let them laugh. But the day is coming when they won't laugh, you know. And the day is coming when God will deal with their lives until they long for holiness as well. So that's the second thing. God, God demands holiness from us today. The third thing is this that holiness in our lives gives us boldness. Now, first of all, the righteousness of Jesus Christ gives us boldness, doesn't it, to approach his throne. But do you know that when you have holiness in your own life functioning, you also get very bold. That sin it stops a person's effective work for Christ. It really does. And most of us who are moving on with God, we hate sin so much that, in fact, we find it puts us out of sorts. And we really have to have dealings with God, claiming 1 John 1, 9, really getting cleansed from it. Just one scripture on that. If we go to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, right, verse uh, 17, here's the promise of God, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of sin is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so the holiness of God and the holiness that we see being effected in our own lives produces this boldness as far as he is concerned. And the very last thing that I want to mention is this, that holiness produces peace in our lives. Holiness produces peace. And the scripture, we won't turn to it, you all know it extremely well, I hope. Right? In Isaiah 57 and verse 21, the scripture is, there is no peace for the wicked, saith the Lord. And haven't you found that as you move on, knowing God's holiness, knowing that robe of righteousness, and seeing God begin to sanctify your life, have you known that wonderful restful sleep of the beloved in Christ? Have you known what it is to be free and to have peace in your innermost man? This is what comes through holiness, you see, as far as we're concerned. All right. It only remains now for us to see the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to see that they are holy. And then we'll complete for this evening. Now, actually, most of the scriptures I've dealt with already refer to the Father, that the Father is holy. But let's just see the prayer of Jesus in John 17, where he definitely says that Father is holy. I don't think I really have to prove that the Father is holy. It's so self-evident from scripture. But in verse 25 of John 17, Jesus' title for his father is this. He says, O righteous father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. O righteous father, a statement of the righteousness of God. And then in Acts 3.14, we see the holiness of Jesus Christ, and it's put in a very beautiful way. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, when Peter is speaking to these Jews, and this is what he says, talking of Jesus. He says this, But you denied the Holy One and the just, and hath desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Talking about Barabbas, and Jesus. They denied Jesus, and he's called here, look at this, 
the holy one and the just. Two sides of that thing. The justice, the righteousness of God, all intermingled in that. So there is a statement that Jesus is holy. And actually, I need no statement, do I, about the Holy Spirit? You see, God could have called his spirit the sovereign spirit. He could have called him the mighty spirit. He could have, could have called him the loving spirit, couldn't he? He could have called him the all-seeing spirit, the eternal spirit, but he didn't. The title that he gave him, that we know him as, no matter what language you're speaking in, is the Holy Spirit. And called holy because he manifests the holiness of God more than any other attribute of God. He is the Holy Spirit. And we, may I remind you, are the people of the Lord, and our body, the temple of the Holy Ghost. And that shows the onus is upon holiness as far as our lives are concerned. So let's end with one last scripture found in 2 Timothy 2.19. 2 Timothy 2.19. 2 and most of us know half this scripture, and we conveniently forget the other half. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, says Paul, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. We all know that, don't we? The Lord knows them that are his. We often say, do you think they're born again? Well, finally, the Lord knows those who are his. And the next bit, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's the holiness of God. Let's just pray before we end. Jesus' name. Father, I do pray in Jesus' name that, Father, you will sanctify us more and more as time goes on. Father, we look at ourselves and we just say with Isaiah, Woe unto me, I am undone. And, Father, the more we move on with you and the more we know of you, the more unworthy we know ourselves to be. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus that you will indeed, Lord, have your way in our lives, that your holiness is going to be seen manifested in us, that, Father, the bright light of your holiness should indeed be a light that shines in the darkness, and that people might see it, and many should be attracted to it, and after the filth and degradation of this world, really want to know what it is to lead an upright and pure life before you. Father, please just bless us. Bless all who are here tonight. Bless those who can't be here. And Father, please guide us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.